Uh, if you haven't, if you if you're just joining us uh, for the first time this Lent, or if you you haven't, you've been at different churches around the diocese or something. Um, what we've been doing throughout the course of Lent, uh, both here and at St. Hilary, um, is we have been walking through a, a continuous teaching um, called "Behold the Lamb." And basically, what we've been looking at is the background or the the, the Jewish roots of the Mass that we celebrate. Um, I started I started at the beginning. Uh, I think three weeks ago now, um, and asked the question, because it, it was a lot of, do we have to go to Mass, was kind of the question, kind of the thing that framed this whole thing, because quite honestly, with COVID and, and with, with the hurricane and, and with all these different things, we've had reasons to think, well, I don't really need to worry about going to Mass, or I can just watch it on Facebook or whatever. But as we've seen over these last three weeks, and we'll continue to break open today, well, there, there's, a, there's some teaching behind why we do what we do and why we come to, to Mass and, and why we celebrate the way that we celebrate in particular. So if you give me two minutes, I'm going to kind of walk through the last three weeks just to kind of get us up to speed as much as possible. The first week, what we did was, is we broke up in the idea of worship, right? In the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, the first time God talks to a people and says, this is how I want you to worship, or this is how I want you to live, the first time he starts to give the law, he gives four chapters about how he wants people to live, and he gives seven chapters on how he wants to worship. So he spends twice as much time concerned about how the people are worshiping him. It's important to God. And ultimately, if God is who he says he is, and we are who, as, as the ones he created, then when it comes to worship, God dictates how we worship, not us. Right? And to say, I'll do it how I want, is putting ourselves equal to God, and it's not really giving him right worship. So God is the one that dictates how we worship, not us. That was week one. Week two, um, we broke open the idea of how God wants us to worship, and that was a concept of sacrifice. That God is asking for sacrifice. A sacrifice consecrates, separates, makes holy, sets apart something for God. And to have a sacrifice, there are four things that we need. We need something to sacrifice, an offering. We need someone to do the sacrificing, the priest. We need a place to sacrifice, an altar. And then finally, we need to consume the sacrifice, either by burning or by eating. But God calls us to sacrifice. That's how, that's how he ordained and he set up the way in which he wants to be worshipped. Last week... We heard about the first major, the preeminent, the kind of the, the, the sacrifice par excellence, the beginning, the first one that God asked of all of his people. We know that Moses, whenever the Israelites were in Egypt in slavery, that they were set free because of ten plagues. Well, those ten plagues had a reason, because God was waging war explicitly on the Egyptian gods. And God was saying, you're going to worship another God besides me? I don't think so. We're going to wage war on each of the Egyptian gods. And he went down the list. The God of the Nile turns water into blood. And if you go all the way through to the 10th plague, the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn, of all the people and all the beasts in Egypt. But the way that an Israelite person, the way that the Israelites would be saved from that, from that plague is that they would offer sacrifice to God. That they would offer the Passover sacrifice. They would sacrifice the lamb, put the blood on their doorpost, and they would be passed over. 
Now, God didn't say, I want you to do it once just to be saved. What I want you to do is I want this sacrifice to continue forever. So God asked us to continue to offer this sacrifice over and over and over again forever. Not just a year, five years, ten years, but forever to offer that same sacrifice again and again in memorial. And if you paid attention last week, the concept of memorial is not what we do when we celebrate an anniversary of, oh, congratulations on 50 years of marriage. It's a big, big deal, right? Yes, great, that's awesome. But the Jewish concept of memorial is much more than just an anniversary. Memorial makes present in the present moment what happened in the past. Say that again. Memorial makes present in the present moment what happened in the past. And if you were with me last week, I didn't have 9 o'clock Mass, but if you were with me last week and you heard me preach last week, you heard me sing a song, my favorite baseball song of all time, and that is Rod Stewart's Maggie Mae. And you're looking at me like, that's a love song. Why in the heck is Rod Stewart, Maggie Mae, Father J.D.'s favorite baseball song? The reason why is because when I was a kid, every game that I played in Little League, when we were on our way to the field, I would push the tape in in my dad's truck, old beat-up company truck, and the first song that would come on was the live version of Rod Stewart, Maggie Mae. And wake up, Maggie, I think I've got something to say to you, is playing through the thing, and it's getting me in the mood to play baseball. Funny story, this past week, me and Father Bruce, were, we were in Louisville um, for Bishop Fo Archbishop Fobb's installation as the new Archbishop in Louisville. Very, very happy for him, very excited. But as we were walking down the street, we were going to meet up with some, with some people for dinner, and I'm walking down the street, and I looked, we were talking, and I looked at him in the middle of the conversation, I looked at him and said, shut up, shut up, shut up. And he was like, excuse me? I said, listen. And across the street, on a patio, playing through the speakers, I could hear the melody going, and I'm like, I'm five years old again. Because every time I hear it, I'm again five years old, sitting in my dad's truck on my way to a baseball game. That's memorial. Makes present, in the present moment, what happened in the past. Might have been more than two minutes, but that's an hour and a half of preaching right there. So hopefully that's good. Hopefully you're caught up to speed. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to break open the Passover and how it developed. Because Moses has Passover sacrifice. They're freed from Egypt. Then from Moses to Jesus, there's about 1,800 years that pass. So the Passover develops. It's about at the same distance from us to Jesus as it was from Moses to Jesus. So put it in context. That's a long time, right? A lot of things happened in that amount of time. And what we see in the Passover is that we have two elements that kind of develop. The first one we're going to break open today is a meal. And the second element is the sacrifice. The meal took place in the home and the sacrifice took place in the temple. The two were very, very uni united and very, very just equally as important, but both, is, both took place, and they both had a different setting. So 1,800 years passed from Moses, and we have this development of a new Passover, a way of celebrating the Passover, because God said, how long did he want the Passover to last? He wanted us to do it forever. 
1,800 years later, they're still offering the same sacrifice in memorial. And every year when they would offer it, they saw themselves as back offering that sacrifice in Egypt for their own salvation, to be saved from the plague. So the meal, as in uh, uh, the meal, we, we can guess the menu because God gives it to the, the Israelite people. There's wine and there's bread. Now the structure of this meal is very important because this was a very, very ordered meal. It was different than the rest of the meals that they would experience all throughout the year. The wine, this is why you know Cajuns and, and, and Israelites were, were, are, are kin to one another. There were four cups of wine, right? That's a lot of wine, and it was a lot of fun, right? But one of the keys about the wine is that in the Jewish culture, wine was a symbol of covenant. Wine was a symbol of entering into a particular relationship with another family or another person or with God. It was a sign of the covenant. This is why at the wedding at Cana, Jesus' first uh, of all of his miracles, when the wine runs out, it's such a tragedy because they can't enter, it's not representative of the covenant. It's kind of a bad omen to the bridegroom and his, and his wife that like, oh, your wine ran out, your covenant is not going to last. So Jesus makes more wine, and again, we, that, that's how we know God's Cajun, right? But in this, in this meal, there are four cups of wine, and they're listed in the bulletin. The first cup is the cup of sanctification, the purpose of this cup was basically to set apart everything else that would happen. Set apart this meal according to every other meal that you're going to experience throughout the year. This meal was not like a reception after a wedding. It, was not a re it wasn't like we get together with the family like at Christmas or at Easter where everybody's talking. It was a very, very scripted meal. The word Seder, if you've ever been to a Seder meal, the word Seder means order. And it was a very, very scripted experience. So the father of the house would sit at the head of the table, and he had lines and prayers that he would say, and he would break open as a way to remember what happened in the past, to make present in the present moment what happened in the past. I remember when we were in seminary, uh, every year for Holy Week, we would have, our, we would have a Seder meal with the monks um, at, at the Abbey at, in Covington. And uh, what they would do is, is Abbot Justin, being Abbot Justin, kind of the father of the house, he would run everything, and the seminarians would come in, and we had a particular place to sit, a particular time we walked in. We'd stand behind our chairs for a certain point. We'd sit down at a certain point. We all had responses that we would do, because it was a very, very ordered experience. Well, it was to set apart. That first cup sets apart. The cup of sanctification sets this meal apart from any other meal that they're going to have throughout the course of the year. The second cup was the cup of proclamation. And this cup of proclamation, what they would do is they would read Exodus. They would read the experience of the Exodus. They would read about the Passover. Again, to make present, the present moment, what happened in the past. The third cup was the cup of blessing. And this is the point, next week we're going to break this open and it's going to, it's going to blow your mind, I promise you. But th this is the point where... The cup of blessing is offered, and this is where Jesus kind of changes the words a little bit. But we'll get into that next week. And then the fourth cup is the cup of praise. 
And a cup of praise is whenever the sacrifice was consummated. It was finished. It was done. This is the spot. Whenever they were finished the sacrifice, it was complete. And they had offered their sacrifice to God appropriately. So that was the cups. That's the wine. But what happened is some of the script, for example, that the father would say, listen to these words. They're in the bulletin, but just listen to these words and see if they, they, they remind you of anything. The father would sit at the head of the house and he would grab bread and he would say, blessed are you, Lord God, who brings forth bread from the earth. Then he would grab wine and he would say, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. It's at the Passover meal. And he's praying a prayer of blessing over the bread and the wine before the meal begins. Kind of like whenever a father of a community stands behind an altar. And in a few minutes, I'll say words like, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth. Or, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the, the wine we offer you, fruit of the vine. You see, when we come to Mass, we're coming and celebrating a meal. We have to, we have to consume the sacrifice. We're coming to, to mimic, if you will, to fulfill the Seder. And a lot of what we do in Mass is not, it might seem kind of awkward, the language might seem kind of archaic, it might seem kind of irrelevant to what, how we speak and how we do things, but the reason why is because what we do in Mass is not 2,000 years old, then go back to Jesus, this is a 4,000-year-old rite. This is a 4,000-year-old approach and way of offering that God has asked us to offer Him bread and wine. And in a particular way, we're going to offer bread and wine in a very, very Jewish sense. But that's a Seder meal. That's what's taking place back at home. There's one element of the sacrifice of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus' time, of the Passover of Jesus' time, that's missing in what I just talked about at the Seder meal. And that is the lamb. We hear about the importance of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is what sets the, sets the Israelites free from the 10th plague. All of these things. This continues on forever, and a lamb has to be sacrificed. Well, that sacrifice of the lamb no longer takes place in the Jewish home by the time Jesus comes around. 1,800 years passes, the home is where we eat the meal. But the sacrifice now has moved to taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was roughly 80,000 people that lived there at this time. So think Jerusalem is about the same size as Lake Charles, right? But at the time of the Passover, Jerusalem would grow, would swell in its population to one and a half to two million people. So all of a sudden, Lake Charles grows twice the size of New Orleans for a matter of a couple of weeks. You got a lot of people, and a lot of people coming to the temple to offer their sacrifice of the lamb. So what would happen? 
the temple is packed. The temple is this big, massive one place where the sacrifice can be offered. There are three different sections of the temple. The outer section, the outer court is what it's called, is where they would kind of, they could, they could exchange money because you couldn't bring regular money into the temple because it was a sense of idolatry because you had Caesar's face on it. There, there was, they would sell livestock so that you could get your lamb at the temple, all those kind of things. And it was in the outer court. Imagine like the parking lot. That's where visiting and taking, hanging out and joking around and kidding. And that's where everybody would talk and catch up on all their gossip after, after the temple worship, right? That, just like we do in church, right? Well, then you walk into the inner court. And the inner court was where we saw the people come and approach the altar for worship. They would come together and they would listen to the word. They would, they would be in communion with one another. And it was kind of reserved for the people that were coming to offer worship to God. And then in the center, at the closest part, the most intimate part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And that was only the place for the priest. There was a beautiful priesthood that was attached to the temple where it was a, it was a lineage kind of thing. And there were people that were priests that were out and about all over Israel serving and praising God and offering, and offering their, their teaching and, and serving as rabbis and all these kind of things. But what would happen is at the Passover, all the priests from around the country would be called back to the temple to help with the service, with the sacrifice, because we got two million people that are all of a sudden in a town that holds 80,000. So all the priests would come to the sanctuary of the, of the temple. And what would happen is every family would have a father and usually the oldest son, and they would go and procure, procure a lamb. They would get a lamb and they would bring it to the temple. And two things would happen in the temple. The first is that it was sacrificed. The second is that it was prepared for roasting. So what they would do, and if, you, if you're a, a PETA person, sorry, but it might be a little bit graphic. What would happen is, is that the, they would bring in the lamb. About 30 men at a time with their sons would bring their lamb forward because you couldn't fit everyone. And to keep them out of the sanctuary, because the sanctuary was a place for the priest, not for the common person, what they had is, is they had a rail that was around the altar. An altar rail, aptly named. Now, if you're from a certain generation coming to the Catholic Church, you may remember receiving communion at an altar rail. But what would happen is they would walk up, the, they would walk the animal forward, come to the rail, the priest would have a chalice in his hand, a golden chalice, and he would hold the chalice under the animal. The son would lift up the neck, and the father would execute the sacrifice with one swing of a knife. Now, if you've ever butchered an animal, you know there's a lot of blood. And what would happen? They would catch the blood of the sacrifice in the chalice. The priest would then hand that chalice off to someone, and they would go to the next and the next, and they would work their way down. But as they would hand that, that chalice off to the other priest, another priest would hand it off. It was kind of an assembly line, and they would take the blood of the chalice, and they would pour it on the altar. because There was an altar that was set up. Because the blood of the lamb has to be offered on an altar. You have an offering, you have a priest, 
and you have an altar. It's all the elements that are necessary for sacrifice. But a chalice, the blood of the lamb is what sets the people free. The chalice would offer the blood on an altar. So that's how the animal was sacrificed. After it was sacrificed, then it needed to be prepared. And the way that the animal was prepared, now if you're going to roast an animal, one of the things you need to do is you need to make a lot of surface area. I remember when I first heard this, I thought of like a, old images of like a luau, like from cartoons where you would just tie the feet together on a stick and put it over fire. That wasn't the best way to roast it. But they had gotten it down to almost a science where what they would do is, is they would take the front legs of the animal and they would spread them out. And they would tie the ankles of the front legs wide open like this. Just to open up the chest there where the meat is so that they could have all of, this, all of the surface area covered over the fire. The next thing they would do is they would take another stick, another stay, and they would run it down the back of the animal, tying its neck and its hind legs together. Neck to it and hind legs together. So as people were walking out of the temple, they were walking with a lamb in the shape of something like this. Arms outstretched, feet together, head up. A shape like that. How many lambs are we talking about? Two million people, right? There's, a, there's a, one ancient source that said, in a matter of a few hours, that in the temple they sacrificed 250,000 lambs. Just imagine for a moment, walking in and out of this massive temple on a, on a mountain in Jerusalem. You have some people walking in with lambs on a rope. And you have some people walking out with crucified lambs in the shape of a cross and carrying them on their shoulder, bringing them home to roast. Two hundred fifty thousand lambs. If you've never butchered an animal, is a lot of blood. And what they would do is, is in the sanctuary area, there was a drain, and to keep the blood from congealing, what they would do is, is they would add water to dilute it so that they could get it out through the drain, so it wouldn't clog anything up. And this drain ran off from the temple, which was up on this mountain. It ran off into a nearby valley. So as people approached the temple for their sacrifice, they would see that the sacrifice is going on. Why? Because the temple, in the temple, they had a drain that was, that was basically had blood and water just kind of pumping out the side of the building. Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, the temple was up on a mountain and there was a valley that you had to pass through to get there, to get to the city of Jerusalem called the Kidron Valley. So they would walk, and as they would walk, they would see the blood pouring forth up in the, up in the area, up in the, uh, on the ridge of the valley. On one side of the valley was the Garden of Gethsemane. On the other side of the valley was the temple. So just imagine with me, 
Because we hear about it in Scripture that John and Peter go to prepare the Passover feast so that the apostles can eat the Passover with Christ on Holy Thursday. Just imagine John and Peter walking to the temple. And what do they see? A quarter of a million lambs coming out of the temple in the shape of a crucifix. The temple having blood and water pouring forth through a drain into the valley that they see as they're walking into the city. On Good Friday, we're going to read the Passion. Next week, we read the Passion account. On Good Friday, we're going to read the Passion account. John writes a Passion account. And in his Passion account, I want to read a small piece of it because we've got to realize what it is that he's attesting to because he's going to put the details that he sees that are important for a certain reason. And on the day before the Passion happened, John, with Peter, walks through this valley, sees, a, sees this massive temple that has blood and water spewing out of its side. And he remembers the teachings of Jesus. So listen to these words from, the, from John's Gospel. Since it was the day of preparation in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. When we read that, it makes sense. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth that you may also believe. John puts in after that line about the blood and water coming from the side of Jesus. He says, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. That this is what took place. Because John remembers whenever Peter, when Jesus caught, caught stuff from the Pharisees who were saying to him, they were, doubting because Jesus, they were doubting him because Jesus had said, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And at that moment, John realizes that it's not the temple, the brick and mortar that, t- that is in Jerusalem, but instead it was the temple of his body. And as he stands there, he sees the same image that he did when he was coming through the valley up to the temple to prepare for the sacrifice. That he sees the lamb who's been sacrificed, a lamb who's been prepared to be eaten. And it all comes to fulfillment and culmination for him when he is standing at Calvary next to the Blessed Mother. When he's followed in step from a distance, Jesus, as he does his passion and way of the cross, that he sees the lamb that has been sacrificed and the fulfillment of what it is that God promised. That this sacrifice will take place forever. When we come to Mass today, 
we don't just come as an anniversary, but instead we're, we're, we're going to be at Calvary with Jesus when he offers the sacrifice. And we get to consume of the sacrifice. The sacrifice is not complete unless we consume it. So we have a priest, we have an altar, we have an offering. We have the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. And we come to Mass today so that we can consume the sacrifice. It's not complete if we don't. Today, we see how the Passover looked in Jesus' time, and how John would have experienced, that as, experienced it as a first century Jew. Not to spoil anything, but next week, we're going to see how Holy Thursday and Good Friday mesh together, just in time for Holy Week. So that as we approach this Easter season, as we approach, approach this Holy Week, that it will be more about the sacrifice of the Lamb on Calvary and less about a crawfish boil. It'll be more about a sacrifice of a lamb on Calvary, Calvary and less about how many beers I can drink with my friends on Good Friday because I'm off. Today, we come to taste of this sacrifice on this altar. So I invite you as we go into this Mass, as we continue in this Mass today, that we we're able to see and, and put ourselves at the foot of Calvary. And when we hear the words, behold the Lamb of God, what was it that St. John was experiencing at that moment? May we have the same wonder and awe, the same fulfillment in our mind as we come to behold the Lamb.